Thank you for that wonderful quietness without even having to ask. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my, welcome everyone. Um, this is our penultimate in the series uh, for Enterprise Tuesday. So, to those of you who have not been to either uh, the Business School or Cambridge before, a, a very warm welcome if this is your first time. Uh, for others, one or two I've seen, I know, have come to previous sessions, and I, I, all I can say is, I think you're in for a bit of a treat, in, in more ways than one, as you've seen out here. Um, I, I won't go into detail to introduce our guest speakers, B Bina's going to do that, but, but thank you for joining us, Peter. Um, it, it's fantastic to have you. Um, but I, I will now just touch on our chair for the evening and, and then hand over. Um, so Bina Meta has joined us, uh, she's a partner at KPMG, um, really quite involved uh, in, in her own work um, around this topic for the evening, so funding global growth. Two things in that, clearly, access to finance as well as expansion internationally. How do you, how do you tackle those two challenges all at once? And I think as you'll discover from Peter's story, um, it, it's, it's not easy, but it is entirely possible. So uh, I hope that all of you will enjoy what you're going to see and participate in. Uh, and I'll come back to you at the end to, to close uh, and welcome you all to join us out, outside. I just heard a beep, so just one piece of housekeeping. Um, if you could switch off your phones uh, or put them to silent, and if there are any laptops, make those disappear as well. You'll find it a much more enjoyable experience. But thank you for joining us, and uh, over to, to, to Bina Meta. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bruno. Can everybody hear me? Yep. So apologies, I probably sound a lot worse than I feel, so hopefully I'll crack on and get, on, get through this session. So um, I just want to say thank you very much for inviting me, Bruno, but I'm inspired because I'm looking forward to your talk, Peter. So for those of you who don't know Peter, um, he is a Cambridge local, and, and you were an entrepreneur here as well, in the tech space, of, which has nothing to do with cho chocolate, um, but you did co-found Hotel Chocolat about well over 25 years ago now. And it listed 30, in... Over 30. Is it 30 years now? Wow. 30 years, my 80, research failed 80, me. 80, 87. 87, okay. Um, but it listed in AIM, on AIM in 2016. So the, the journey to that point is phenomenal. And t Peter will tell you about that and how we managed to grow the, the business without going to equity funding. The world is different today, so there are other options, but actually that was, that's an amazing story. But it listed in AIM, and it's doubled its value in the three years which is phenomenal, so a testament to your success. Uh, Hotel Chocolat is a, the most advocate, one, one of the UK's most advocated brands, and I'm quite inspired by the ethics that you, you base your values on, originality, authenticity, and ethics. But I'm sure most of you do know this, but just in case you don't know, it's not just about those chocolates there. Um, whilst you have over 100 shops, it is more than that. It owns its own supply chain. It's got its own cocoa plantation in St. Lucia. What a great place to go to do your checks. Um, it's got its own hotel. It's got its own cookery book. It's got cafes. It's got restaurants. Um, it's also expanded into countries including Denmark, um, New York, uh, US, and, um, and others as well, and Hong Kong. So it's a phenomenal story in terms of what this brand has achieved and what we're going to hear about. Peter was the finance director for most of that journey, so really pertinent to this topic about funding and the challenges around funding and actually growing internationally because there are, whilst it's something that lots of businesses want to do, it is a quite a challenge for businesses. So Peter led that and took the business to the Times Fast Track 100 list three times, which is pretty phenomenal, and was named one of EY's, God, did I say that? EY's Entrepreneur of the Year 
with your co-founder Angus, right? Um, and then that led on to your creative funding routes, which we'll talk about in a minute. So you now focus on the growth of the business. Um, and also Peter's a mentor for the Prince's Trust and mentors many businesses and speaks obviously academically and in the business world. So without much ado, thank you very much, Peter. My Cheers. absolute pleasure. So first, first of all, I would just like to thank you very much indeed for turning up on time, being quiet as mice. Um, I've put some chocolates there. We only opened them when you'd sat down because we didn't want any to get eaten now. So as a sort of special bonus for listening and behaving perfectly, afterwards you can have a chocolate. But no, it's, seriously, the only thing I would say is um, if any of you've got any allergens or, thing, or uh, allergies, then you know I'd suggest you don't touch them. But you know if you're pretty chilled and able to eat them, then you know help yourself. There's, a, there's definitely one each, but you know there might be two if you hang around a bit longer. <laughs> okay, my, my first question to you guys is: Can you just can I have a show of hands of how many of you have actually been into our hotel chocolat shop in Cambridge? So we've got probably about 50% there. So what I would say is to the other 50%, please could you go in there and then th that, that way you can actually experience firsthand a little bit more about Hotel Chocolat. Okay, so just to tell you what we do, um, we do grow cocoa and we'll come back to that a little bit later on our own cocoa plantation. We make world-class chocolates, so we actually manufacture them. We don't have them made for us. And that is, again, very local. Um, and we sell chocolates to our loyal customers, but it's much more than that. It's an experience when people visit us. It makes people happy. It's about theatre. It's about uh, not just selling things that you can buy online. You know, you obviously read a lot about the um, retail world, about a lot of companies uh, struggling but the companies that, that are struggling are those that don't address what people really want. And when I've spoken to MBA students before here, I've often called my talk listening to customers. And I think that, to me, is one of the most powerful things. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say more can be sold by listening than talking. So why am I talking? <laughs> um, OK, so um, just um, moving on a little bit. Um, when we um, set up Hotel Chocolat, that wasn't the name of the first business we set up, and I'll come back to that in, shortly. But Hotel Chocolat came about in 2003. And it came about because at the time, we were a business called Choc Express, and we were all about delivered chocolate gifts. And you can tell by the name that it's about getting the chocolates to the destination. It's about, and quickly, i.e. Express. And at the time, we were having chocolates made for us by specialist people, specialist companies all around Europe. And the chocolates were very good quality. But the maximum um, compliment we could get was, actually, your chocolates are quite good. And to my business partner and I, we were absolutely gutted when we heard that, because it was people having to sort of hold back on what they thought, because they didn't really understand the brand. And it's funny, when you look around, um, sometimes a brand will last for a period of time. Sometimes it'll last for hundreds of years. Um, sometimes people change their brands and then they have to change them back again. I think, didn't Royal Mail do that to Consignia or something once? And then back to Royal Mail. Um, and then there are other brands that, 
you think ought to change their name but never do. So someone like Carphone Warehouse, you know, what is a car phone and is it a warehouse? You know, you'd think there was some point in their journey that maybe they could have done it, but they probably got too big. With us and Choc Express, it was more important to us because we were stalling in our customers' eyes and that was the most important thing. So we knew um, we liked the word chocolat because it's far more luxurious and evocative um, and emotional than the word chocolate, which sounded very industrial to us. And so uh, we decided to rebrand it to um, chocolat, but to trademark it, you have to have another word because chocolat is, a French, is the French word for chocolate. And so we had to add another word. So we looked at a number of different words and we came up with the word hotel. And we just were really sort of fascinated by the two, the juxtaposition of those two words. Uh, we imagined having a, a shop in a high street at some point. Um, and maybe it would look really weird, you know, shops with the word hotel. Was it a hotel or was it a chocolate shop? You know, so was, we liked the sort of confusion, but we also liked the fact that this was like a metaphorical escape. So this was like going somewhere luxurious in one's mind. And uh, so the name we rebranded in 2003, um, and that was the, that was the start. And, and interestingly enough, the innovation, authenticity, and ethics, at that time, when we were under our previous guise, we'd allowed things to happen in the business um, just um, circumstantially. So it could have been over-packaging, it could have been using ingredients we didn't really like, but they'd sort of crept in because we were buying other people's products. So we had a very cathartic experience when we uh, rebranded because we were able to sort of throw away all the things we didn't like. And we actually had a meeting in our head office, which is in Royston, because we can't afford Cambridge, um, and uh, in, in Royston, and uh, we, we got a, uh, all, a lot of our products out, and we started pulling them apart and putting one pile of things we really liked and the other pile of things we didn't like. So, you know, it was bad ingredients, over-packaging was in the don't-like uh, area, and then um, good packaging, good ingredients uh, was in the other. And so that sort of formulated our sort of what we felt anyway, but it gave us this opportunity to have a clean sheet and sort of reinvent ourselves. And, and those, um, the, the comment about innovation, you know, we've always been a very innovative company. We've never looked at other people's products with a view to uh, mimicking them or copying them. We've always liked to come up with our own ideas and hopefully that shines through when you, if you uh, look at our products in our shops or online. And authenticity. You know, we love real things. So um, before we set the business up, you know, we loved good wine, good bread, good food. And, you know, why did chocolate have to be, you know, packed with um, hydrogenated vegetable fat and too much sugar? You know, those were things we never, ever liked. So one of our mantras is, mantras is uh, more cocoa, less sugar, because, you know, we believe that cocoa is what people are wanting to buy in their chocolate not sugar with a bit of a flavour of, of cocoa. Um, so if you actually look at our products, all our, our chocolate products, um, all of them have cocoa as the first ingredient in the couverture. So even our white chocolate, the first ingredient is cocoa butter. And that's very rare if you look at your ingredients in your chocolate. Okay. So some facts about Hotel Chocolat. Um, 
I can no longer call us a small business or even, well, I think we're a medium-sized business, but only in comparison to, to others. But our sales are currently 116 million. Um, we've got over 100 shops in the UK, and that ranges from London, uh, London-centric through to um, Inverness is our furthest north one, to uh, Plymouth and, and Truro in, in, our, um, in, in, the, uh, in Cornwall. Um, we've been online actually considerably longer than 2003, but on the basis that Hotel Chocolat only appeared in 2003, uh, it's from the beginning. But for 10 years before that, um, we were, uh, when we were Choc Express, we were one of the first businesses to go online because the whole concept of delivering chocolate <coughs> gifts, um, as we were doing, um, was very um, um, commensurate and sensible to, uh, to be uh, done online. Um, we have a factory in Cambridge, it's actually in Huntingdon, it's on a um, seven acre site and so we make all our chocolates there and the beauty of that is that since we started it from scratch um, we were able to invest in brand new equipment and so you know a lot of chocolate companies or confectionery companies you visit have got very primitive equipment because it's sort of hereditary and they've inherited it from previous owners or family. Uh, we've got about 2,000 employees, um, quite a lot in our factory, so we've got about 350 in our factory. Uh, in our distribution centre, about another 100, 100 150, um, and then across all our shops um, and in other locations um, in the, around the world. Um, a cocoa estate in St Lucia, I'll come back to that, because I'm sure you're, you're absolutely fascinated to work out why the hell we got involved in that. Um, and then we listed on... Um, the stock exchange in 2016 and you know it's quite interesting that you know we started the original business in 1987 and we didn't choose to actually sell any equity along the way and you know there was temptations as you start to grow a bit you think should I give it away and um, but you know if you can find alternative methods of funding there's absolutely nothing wrong with us doing it what I describe as the old-fashioned way um, and you know it's it's been very useful um, as I'll come back to in a moment. So how was, so if I take you right back to the beginning, and I, I don't know the stages at which you guys are at, but I mean, some of you will be thinking about starting your own businesses. When we started our business, um, neither Angus, my business partner, or myself had any money that we could actually put into the business. And um, so we actually borrowed 5,000 pounds each from the bank. Um, and then we lent it to the business and the bank then gave us a £15,000 unsecured overdraft. And it was quite interesting because at that time, um, I, when I started the business with Angus, um, um, my wife was expecting our, um, our second baby. So she'd, had, she'd given up work as a nurse in Cambridge and Addenbrookes. Um, I'd just, in the last two or three years before that, bought a house which was incredibly expensive, it was £100,000, can you believe that? <laughs> and, um, but at the time that seemed like a lot to people and um, so had all the things that would say to you, look you've got a lot of responsibilities, it's only your income and there was me turning the dial back to zero um, because I thought starting my own business at that stage would be a good idea. Um, before that, I was in the computer business. I started a company called Torch Computers, which um, made a business version of the BBC Micro, but probably only one or two people in the room will have ever heard of that product. Um, 
One of the things that we did though, when we started the business is we concentrated on our orders first. And to me, that is the best thing that anyone can do. You know, there was this thing where people used to, when they were starting businesses, say, right, I need an office, I need to buy this, I need to buy a computer, I need to buy, um, you know, um, commit to lots of things before they'd ever got any income at all. And the thing about businesses is that if you've got money and um, profits, then you've got time. And if you start spending the money and you've got commitments to keep spending the money, which could be leases or um, rent or whatever, then your time will start to run out as you can't um, match that with income. So I'm an absolute fan of get the orders first, get the sales first. And you know, I challenge anyone in whatever business they're in not to at least have explored that route in a very, in a very serious way. Because sometimes people look at that and they say, um, I, I'll get round to that you know, when I've done, finished my development or whatever. And I say to those people, but have you talked to any potential customers to actually work out whether the development you're doing is appropriate for them to want to maybe spend their money in the future? And the number of times that they come back saying, well, I haven't got round to it yet, but you know, do you think I should? You know, am I giving away their, the idea? And you know, when we started our business, the original business, which was called Mint Marketing Company, and this is where we made little packs of peppermints with different companies' uh, corporate logos on, um, people used to say, <coughs> say to us, that's a fantastic idea, I wish I'd thought of it. And I used to say, no, no, it's not like that. It's a, there's thousands of good ideas, it's just you've got to have people who've got the courage and application to be able to develop those ideas. And so it was sort of not by getting the, if you got the idea and sat there, did nothing, nothing would have happened, but we went out and sold it. So very low overheads. So when we actually started the business, um, we started in the front room of Angus's house. Um, when we did, about nine months later, decide to rent an office uh, when his wife had had enough of us working in the house. Um, we um, took a very uh, low-cost building, very short lease, um, painted it ourselves, um, bought um, some office furniture second-hand for about £50 from, a, from um, um, na uh, Network Rail. Um, so it was really sort of low-key stuff because nothing mattered to us other than the fact we needed to concentrate on um, making money, not spending it. And, you know, it's funny because in that period when I described this sort of um, my, you know, my wife expecting us our second child and everything, I never felt um, broke or hungry or, you know, not enough clothes or couldn't go on holiday. I never felt bad about that. You know, I, I, I thought, you know, I thought to myself, this is, it seems perfectly normal. And so I, you know, you don't have to be sad because you haven't got income for a period of time. You know, to me, it's just a bridge and I suppose if you uh, sat me on a psychiatrist's couch and said, how could you just do that? I think it's probably about confidence. You know, it's about thinking to yourself, either you're going to earn nothing at all or you're going to earn a lot of money. And I couldn't even contemplate that I was going to earn not very much money at all. You know, I, the only thing I didn't know was when, and yet I was prepared to take that, that, take that risk. Um, so then just looking at a couple of other points there, good profit margins. 
if you have a business that operates on very low profit margins, if you make a mistake and you're only making, say, 10% profit on something, you have to sell a heck of a lot more things to cover all those costs, that 90% of costs. If you've got you know, a 60% profit margin or more, then you're in a very good place that you can recover if, if you, if you uh, falter slightly. So good profit margins, again, to me, are really important. And you know, when we originally sold our mints, um, an initial order was two and a half thousand pounds for 10,000 packs. And it was quite a lot of money, but you know, we were appealing to people's marketing budgets and they would pay that. And then um, we thought, well, okay, if we um, make it so they only have to buy 5,000 packs and we push the price up a bit, will we sell more? And we did that. We effectively halved our sales, which is sort of quite interesting. So the fact is that you know, keeping those profit margins in, in a good place and keeping those sales up was absolutely uh, uh, vital. Good credit terms from suppliers. Again, you know, if you never ask your suppliers for extended credit terms, that they won't offer them to you. But if you ask them, if they trust you and you do pay um, promptly when on the terms you agree, then it's a very easy way to get um, credit. Um, and then reinvested the profits to fuel our growth. I mean, when we were working in this um, tiny office in a place called Whittlesford, I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It's, it's in the sort of not very far from Cambridge. Um, we grew the sales and in the first 18 months for 283,000 pounds. This is on these little packs of peppermints. And we then took on premises. And I'd, I'd gone through a sort of what I describe as a slightly risk averse phase because when I was in the computer business, we used to make losses most months and every now and again we'd sell a load of computers and we'd make some money. And I just didn't like that for the reasons I said earlier that um, profits give you time and um, credibility and make you feel good. And so I'd really decided when we started this business we were going to absolutely batten the hatches down, not spend any money till we've got it. And so we decided to move from these modest premises in uh, Whittlesford to some offices in Royston, which are our existing ones. And we built the building there. And the building cost £211,000 to build. Uh, in, this is in about 1989. Um, and I put down a deposit of £150,000. And that sort of tells, <laughs> tells you how I was feeling at the time, that this seemed like a massive step but we'd accumulated all these profits in this little uh, business, but selling um, very successfully. And because we thought to ourselves, if we um, had bitten off more than we could chew with this office, we might not be able to fill it. And that was 3,700 square feet. Those offices now have grown to about 16,000 square feet on the same site. So it sort of shows you that, you know, I, well, it shows you that we've sort of been sensible along the way. Okay, so just coming on to retail, retail development. When we rebranded to Hotel Chocolat, we decided that, um, and so we had been um, online only and uh, catalogue-based business, and we'd actually invented a product that was called the Chocogram, and this was um, a box of chocolates uh, with um, a message uh, packed so it would go through the post. So the um, side aspect of it was the same as a letterbox. And that's actually a product called our Sleekster in our, um, in our uh, retail shops and online. So we, uh, we decided that we would test a shop. And this was interesting because at that time, 
Thornton's had something like 600 shops around the UK and we had none. And so we opened, decided to open our first shop and we opened it in um, Watford in a place called the Harlequin Centre, which is a fairly vanilla shopping centre in a, you know, an, a, a sort of out, a suburb, if you like, of London. And the reason we opened it there was we wanted to test the temperature of the water. And people said, well, why don't you open one in Cambridge? And we were worried about doing that because we thought if it was successful in Cambridge, then we wouldn't know whether it's because people in, up the street said, oh, you know those two people, they set that business up, we really ought to support them. You know, they're quite nice guys. And we just thought that wouldn't be a good reading. So we opened in Watford. We didn't know a soul in Watford. We just turned up, built the shop, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, opened the doors. And it did, really it did really well in our eyes, but it wasn't brilliant. I mean, it was a fabulous-looking shop. I couldn't believe it when we, we opened the doors that Angus and I stood outside and watched people actually go into the shop, look at stuff, pick it off the shelves, go to the desk, pay for it, come out with a hotel chocolate bag and we were just sort of massive smiles on our faces and sort of understanding maybe people like our products because we're not you know um, we weren't perfect uh, shoppers at that point didn't, didn't understand the retail market we then opened our second shop in Milton Keynes in July 2005 and the reason we chose Milton Keynes was because it was in a, a, a more geographically central location, so on the M1, um, easily accessible. And we opened that shop and it absolutely flew because we uh, used our database that we'd built up over the past um, 15 years um, to actually tell everyone, by the way, we're not just online, come and see us in bricks and mortar in um, Milton Keynes. And we had a database at that time, probably 500,000 people. And we just told them. And I just think people drove up the motorway and thought, you know, I think we can just stop at Milton Keynes, have a quick look at that shop. And I just think people did that on their journeys. And that shop went straight to over a million pound of sales a year. And it really hyped um, Angus and I up. So we thought, wow, we've got a bit of a tiger here. So we decided to open shops, you know, more shops. So, you know, another, we said, let's open another 10 shops. And we did this, and you can see what I've said there, funded by opening the period up to Christmas. As uh, Bina said, I'm, I was the finance director. I'm a chartered accountant, by the way. That's my confession of the evening. Um, but, I, and, but I see myself more as a businessman. But, so I was the, f the finance guy for the first 24 years of the business. And so I'd worked out that if I opened the shops up to Christmas, the Christmas business, which was disproportionate, you know, something like 40% of the business in November and December, actually paid for the shop fit. So I didn't have to go to the bank and borrow loads of money. Because if you opened in January, you've got to wait then 11 or 12 months before you get those big bits of business. And uh, so that was, that was brilliant because it, did, it meant you, couldn't, you didn't just have to open one shop. You could open lots of shops. And that's what we did. So in that period, we became um, the fastest growing company in the UK. And that was because our sales went from £400,000 in year one to £16 million in year three, uh, which was quite sort of savage growth. But it didn't feel, you know, we weren't trying to get on this list. We just said we'll open a load of shops. 
and um, we've had our online business as well. And when you actually um, analyze it, it's a sort of, it is a bit weird because, you know, we weren't just the biggest, fastest growing chocolate company. We were the fastest growing company in the UK, which was sort of very surprising. And so we, we, we got our picture with Richard Branson and um, that, so that was in, I think, 2008. So just along the way then, obviously, this doesn't happen on its own and so we've had to make really big investments across the whole board and so we're talking here about people and you know I've said we employ 2,000 people so we've recruited great people because you can't do everything on your own and you know my view with people is it's always good to get people um, who can do a better job than yourself and you know I think if you can accept your limitations it's actually quite good so on the on the um, you know, if, if your question is, why aren't I still the finance director? The answer is our CFO is a damn sight better than me at this stage in the business. And, you know, I, I take my hat off to him. He's, he's much more in tune. I qualified in 1979, so it sort of tells you that um, I probably did it with a quill pen and things like that. Um, so shops, we've obviously invested a lot in shops, um, digital innovation. You know, we were, as I said, we were very early into the um, internet, and so we've always um, kept um, kept up to speed with that. But chocolate making was a funny one because, you know, vertically integrated businesses. You know, I, I don't know whether the Cambridge uh, Judges Institute actually says, you know, you should specialise rather than become vertically integrated. But we became a bit vertically integrated on the manufacturing side for a very good reason. That was because as we were growing so quickly and we were having our chocolates made in before 2008 by these passionate family businesses across Europe. So you're talking about um, Belgium, France, Italy, Spain um, and the UK, of course. And we said to these people, look, um, we're growing quite quickly. We'd like to place a bigger order for chocolates with you next year. So we'd like to actually double our order. And these people sort of threw their arms up in horror and said, look, you know, we can give you 10% more, but, you know, we're a small family business. We've only got 5,000 square feet. And this really sort of was quite frightening that we were sort of going gung-ho opening these shops, assuming we'd be able to um, make enough chocolates to be able to satisfy this demand. So it sort of frightened us a little bit. And before that, we were actually buying these chocolates in from these different companies or having them made for us, and they would deliver, us, deliver them to us and we bought it, we'd already bought the freehold of our factory in Huntingdon. Um, this five, well, it's a five-acre site, it's grown to seven acres, but oh, this five-acre site, so it was a big factory. So we were then packing the chocolates into um, our own boxes, so they'd be chocolates from different um, uh, chocolate makers. And so the beautiful thing here is that we had space, we had a, a food-grade factory of 70,000 square feet there that we were using. And the, the exciting thing about this is that then if we decided to dip our toe into manufacturing, we had the space for it. We didn't have to go and get a factory and expertise. We actually had the expertise in-house and the space. So with our first system, which is a chocolate-making production line, it cost us three-quarters of a million pounds, but within, it paid for itself within six to nine months. And that was sort of staggering to us because we'd been subcontracting this manufacturer at that point. And what it sort of showed to us, it sort of um, took the lid off um, 
I wouldn't say the, it wasn't easy because obviously all these things are, are fraught with um, their own problems. But when we got it right, and that was quite quickly, um, we knew how many of the products we needed because they were our shops, they were our online customers. So if we said we need a million of that chocolate bar, we knew we, that we could get that order and that order would be made on our equipment straight away. Whereas if you've got, um, if you're not certain of your um, sales line, so if you're supplying to Tesco or someone like that, they might, might suddenly decide to delist you and you make a million of these bars and you can't sell them. But with us, we had that uh, relationship direct with our customers and that was really fundamental and you know to this day I absolutely love our relationship with our customers across all our channels. Um, and then St Lucia and um, St Lucia is um, quite an interesting story, I'll give you some nicer pictures there. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing to understand. I mentioned the ethics at the beginning and one of the things that we wanted is we wanted to be closer to cocoa and this was, we're talking about in 1999. And so what we did is we got in touch with a community in Ghana in a place called Osuben and we wanted to assist them so that we could get good knowledge and um, good understanding of cocoa. And so we started this project and we've actually, to this day, we still fund, help fund this cocoa farming community with sustainable projects. And we didn't give the money to an organisation that then gave it to this community. We decided to deal directly with this group on the ground there. And we've paid for the um, planting of over a million cocoa trees in Ghana. We've paid for water boreholes. We've paid for... Um, a medical centre in uh, this community. And one of the things that this did was it actually made us um, more closer to the cocoa, but in a way not close enough. And so coincidentally, we, had the, we have this um, part of our business is called the Tasting Club. Has, has anyone heard of that, the Chocolate Tasting Club? A few people, yeah. Okay, so this is where people can have chocolates, freshly made chocolates, uh, to recipes that are not, are not available in our shops normally, um, and they can receive these once a month. And we built this club up to, um, um, well, it's currently about 40,000 people. But one of our members sent, um, uh, sent us a book, which was called something like Cocoa Growing and Chocolate Production. And my business partner read this book, and then he gave it to me and he said, here, Peter, read this, see what you think. And so I read it and then Angus and I had a conversation and we just said, it just makes us want to have our own cocoa plantation. And it's an extraordinary thing to sort of say that you can read a book and it says that. But what this book did is it sort of filled in the gaps of our knowledge. So it was like the ladybird book of cocoa growing and chocolate production. So it showed you where in the world cocoa grows, it showed you how you plant it, how you harvest it, how you um, ferment it, how you uh, roast it, you know, so it showed you all the, the processes and it made it sort of seem easy. So uh, Angus and I talked about this and we said, yeah, it'd be quite nice to have our own plantation. So Angus said, um, so no, so, we, so before, uh, before that we looked in this book and we looked at the map of the world and it showed you that cocoa grows plus or minus 25 degrees from the equator. 
And so we started looking at places and we looked at Vietnam and we thought, That's, that sounds really nice, but then we don't speak the language, we don't understand the culture. Um, and so we then started moving west and then we looked at Madagascar and again, you know, I'm not aware it's very easy to get there or the, I don't even know the language that's spoken in Madagascar. And then we moved uh, west again and we looked at the west of Africa and obviously we knew a little bit about that because of Ghana but there's places like Ivory Coast as well. Um, but again, we know the, that the um, uh, supply lines to Africa aren't straightforward and the um, communications aren't, aren't particularly good. So we kept looking on this map and then we looked to the north of South America and uh, we looked at places like Brazil, uh, Peru, Venezuela, Colombia and then we thought um, well if we go to Colombia we may never come back but that, that, and I apologize if there's anyone from Colombia here I don't mean that in a nasty way um, but you know so it was this is about not really understanding different cultures and different uh, countries um, and then we sort of came back and then we looked and in the Caribbean uh, Jamaica Grenada and St Lucia are um, actually uh, good for what they call fine flavor cocoa and the thing that's particularly interesting about those islands is that they have they've, um, got very strong links to their British backgrounds. So same legal system, good communications, um, and uh, easy access, in other words, direct flights from the UK, speak English. So we started looking for the uh, cocoa, well, Angus did, and in a way I'm the more sort of moderate one in our business relationship, Angus is a bit more gung-ho. Um, and I sort of hoped he wouldn't find one too quickly. But anyway, he, um, within about six weeks, he said, Peter, I think I might have found one. And so this was in St. Lucia. And the people said, um, you need to come out and see it. So we said, OK, we'll, we'll go out and see it. And uh, then, so we said, we'll come out in July. And they said, no, no, you've got to come out sooner than that because other people want to buy this uh, plantation. So we said, OK, we'll come out in April. And then that was about three weeks after this phone call. And so I, I thought to myself, God, this is quite frightening. W what am I going to do to find out if it's possible to buy a cocoa plantation? Do we just turn up and give someone some money? Is, is that legal? Would we be able to get the cocoa that came from this plantation out of the country? You know, there's lots of unanswered questions. So I thought, how can I find out very quickly? So I rang up the St. Lucia government and I made appointments with four of the 12 cabinet ministers, um, all on the same day, the same morning. And so that was the Minister of Tourism, Minister of Agriculture, uh, Minister of Labour, and uh, Minister of Planning. So all the areas that I thought might be relevant to what we might want to do. And we went to St Lucia, um, went to these appointments, and they all turned up, and they all said the same sort of thing, which was, um, you know, we're perfectly happy for you to inwardly invest in St Lucia because there's massive unemployment in the agro agricultural sector. Um, and uh, so they said, you know, but we'll judge you by your deeds, not by your words. And so that was fine for us. Anyway, we then went to look at this cocoa plantation. And as I said, I'm the more sort of um, measured one in this... Um, relationship and I think it's a bit more gung-ho. Anyway, I'm standing on the um, veranda of the um, old estate house there and it's got an amazing view which is similar to the one the top, top right there. 
And I just turned to Angus and I said to Angus, Angus, we've just got to have this place. And he said, whoa, steady on, you know, are you sure it's the best one? And so there was a real little role reversal there. Okay, so that was how we bought the, the estate. Um, we've actually, the, the three things we wanted to do on the estate was one was to regenerate the cocoa. And it's the oldest cocoa estate in St. Lucia. It's 140 acres. Um, the second thing we wanted to do is to um, uh, build um, a visitor experience centre, uh, which we're still in the process of doing. And the third thing was to build a boutique hotel so that people could come and actually um, see what we do out there to see how we grow the cocoa and see how it's turned into chocolate. And it just happens to be in a World Heritage site. And so, as it says at the bottom there, St Lucia's leading hotel 2019 from the World Travel Awards. But um, it is a lovely place. If any of you want to go there, then you're, you're most welcome. All, all you have to do is pay, by the way. <laughs> um, okay, so just talking about our source of funding. Um, the culture of our business is incredibly important, and it's probably the single most important thing in our whole business. And this is the way we treat our customers and our guests, and the way that that permeates throughout the business. And this is unwritten. We don't have a training school to make people into automatons. It's just natural. And I think we choose good, normal people who like our values. They like talking about our company and our products and our chocolates and so that is really an incredibly important bit so we, I, I and it's funny because people go into our shops and they say oh I went into one of your shops and the person there just knew everything about chocolate and they were so uh, charming I just loved being in the shop and I'm thinking to myself that's lovely to hear and but you hear it a lot it's not just in one shop where there's someone that you know is like that and if you go to the factory, when you talk to people in our factory, the behaviour is very, very much the same. And in St Lucia, you know, very much the same. The Bain & Co survey is quite interesting because that is um, where there was a, a blind survey. So we didn't know it was going on to 6,000 shoppers. And they asked those shoppers uh, to recommend or to, to list the brands that were ones they would recommend to their friends and families. And the results came out and the companies in the top group there were people like um, Rolex watches, Apple, Mercedes-Benz and then there was Hotel Chocolat and we were the fourth on this list and it was done using the scientific method of net promoter scores and so it was unbelievable because we weren't expecting it, we didn't try, we weren't, it was just, it just happened and so we were sort of pleasantly surprised but Whenever I tell that story to our own people, I always say, yeah, but don't relax because you're only as good as your last um, interaction with your customers and our products, you know, have got to be just as good. So it's a sort of double-edged sword. The chocolate bond. This was something which we became sort of semi-famous for. And this is where we'd been borrowing money from banks on a sort of overdraft basis um, linked to our cycle of um, demand. And we just thought, we didn't like it. And if you cast your minds back to 2010, banks weren't in a particularly good place. You didn't trust them. The world was a bit sort of shaky in the, you know, financially. So we thought, how can we um, find some money to be able to continue to develop our business? And so we came up with this idea of the chocolate bond. And we said to our customers, and this were, these were actually members of our tasting club, in fact, we said to them, 
if you lend us £2,000 or £4,000, we won't pay you any interest, but we'll pay you a return in chocolate. And this would be either we'd give you six boxes for £2,000, this is six boxes a year, or 13 boxes for £4,000. And we told our bank this is what we're doing, and they sort of chuckled in a slightly cynical way, saying, you'll probably raise, you know, a quarter of a million pounds. We raised four million pounds. And it was a sort of testament to the emotional connection we have with our customers. This wasn't about its slightly better value getting the chocolates than money, monetary interest. This was wholly about wanting to be part of the Hotel Chocolat story, wanting the business to succeed. And, you know, it's, it's, it was funny because every after three years, um, we, um, after three years, they could have their money back. And we said to them, would you like your money back? And they, the 90, something like 95% said, no, we don't want our money back. We just want to keep receiving the chocolates. And it was amazing because it was sort of long-term finance on this really slightly unusual, unusual basis. We then went on to do a second round of chocolate bonds and we raised another three million pounds. And, but we, we did actually pay them back last year because you know, it wasn't money that we actually needed at that time, and we'd floated the business as well. So where to, where to now? So more, more innovation. So innovation is, you know, is in, our, uh, in our blood, and we um, come up with loads of new ideas. And if you keep an eye on us as a business, you'll see some of those. And I'll come back to the Velvetizer on the last slide. Um, chocolat cream liqueur, again, you know, this is a fabulous product. It's vodka-based rather than um, whiskey-based, and so it's really about the flavour of the chocolate rather than the flavour of the alcohol. Um, international, we've recently, we've got a joint venture, and, you know, I know this is about funding global growth. How do we do that? So in Japan, we've got a joint venture. And that's on the basis that we can actually uh, buy out our partner on a predetermined multiple um, in about two or three years' time or beyond that so that we can get control of it. Because as a quoted business, we've got to be careful that we don't accumulate losses that we have to then consolidate and, you know, it makes our figures not look as good as they ought to. Um, so in Japan, it's a joint venture. In the USA, it's actually a wholly owned subsidiary. So we've actually opened two stores in Japan, in Tokyo, and two in the US. So one in Lexington Avenue. So any of you who are going to New York, please come and see us in New York. Um, and also in Garden State Plaza in New Jersey. Um, fran we're franchising in um, two or three different places. Denmark is one. We actually set up um, three stores in Denmark. And then we, uh, we sold those, the rights to those stores to a franchisee because we weren't able to manage it and grow it uh, when there were bigger markets at stake. And, uh, but that, again, that works because when they want to open a new shop, they fund it. Whereas, you know, if it's us in the UK or in America, it's us that has to fund that. And wholesale partners, and that's where um, it's quite important because you can't ignore... Um, the fact that we can't be everywhere in the UK. So if you go into John Lewis, you'll see our chocolates in uh, the gift area. And so that uh, harmonizes very well with our demographic. Um, you can buy some of our products on Amazon because again, um, Amazon are very powerful as we all know. 
and they sometimes make things so easy that someone just wants to add a box of chocolates on the end there and that's fine, fine with us. So this is my last slide. So this was just, um, when I last did this, it was before Christmas, so this was an ideal Christmas present, but I thought I'd leave it on here. But this is about our innovation, really, because we, um, if you go into one of our shops, which has a cafe, and we've got about 25 of those, Cambridge included, you get the best hot chocolate you can get. And this is, the chocolate is made, the hot chocolate is made from literally grated chocolate. It's not made with powders or syrups or anything like that, just grated chocolate and heated milk. And with the velvetizer, it's a device that we've uh, co-invented and you literally put in cold milk and a, and a sachet uh, of uh, grated chocolate and uh, put the lid on and you press a button and then two and a half minutes later you get barista quality hot chocolate. And it's interesting because we, we only launched that product last September um, and we've sold over 30,000. So it just shows the power of a Hotel Chocolat and our innovation, but also the desire to have hot chocolate that's from Hotel Chocolat. And I think that's where we come to the end. Thank you very much for that, Peter. Um, so if it's okay, I'm going to ask you a few questions and then I'm going to hand over to the audience okay. here because I'm Fine. sure they've got lots and lots of questions for you. But one of the things that struck me, you did talk about that you consciously didn't take equity, um, but that's partly because you're such a good accountant and you manage the money and the cash flows. And lucky. Lucky, <laughs> maybe lucky, maybe not, um, with bank debt and the chocolate bonds. But do you feel, I mean, was there a reason you didn't look to equity? I think, I mean, if you look at a, a wacky decision like buying a cocoa plantation in St Lucia, if we'd have had other shareholders um, and you'd gone over there and said, oh, we want to buy this, you'd sort of have to consult those other shareholders, particularly if it's private equity. The beauty of that is that Angus and I just got on a plane, signed a contract out there, got back on the plane and said, look, we just bought a cocoa plantation. And literally, we'd signed a contract in a week. There was no consultation. We didn't ask the bank. We didn't ask anyone. We just did it. And Freedom. if we'd have had um, outside shareholders and uh, of the sort that you're probably describing, which is, you know, equity uh, investors, um, you know, they'd say, what the hell do you want to buy a cocoa plantation? And in a way, that was with our... Um, hearts rather than our heads but you know looking back with hindsight people say what a master stroke you know to actually get to the core and the credibility of owning your own cocoa plantation is remarkable so it gives you freedom so when you came to aim what was the mind what was the reason behind choosing aim um, we looked at private equity before and we were sort of going down the private equity route but we were sort of, we were only going to sell a third of the business, but the thing that really frightened the living daylights out of us was that the private equity people said, in three to five years, we want to sell our stake. And by the way, you're going to have to sell your stake as well because we're going to have drag and tag rights. And we just thought to ourselves, this is crazy because we are so passionate about our relationship with our customers that the last thing we want is for the the uh, company to get into the hands of one of the big multinationals because that would disappoint our customers so much. So that private equity group frightened us. So then we had a meeting with well, a guy um, who runs a fund and he said, well, why don't you 
floated on AIM. And we said, oh no, that's going to be all that public reporting and all that sort of stuff, and it's very expensive. But then when we went through it, and we understood that as long as, well, I own a third of the shares and my business partner owns a third of the shares and there's a third on the market. And the fact is that as long as we hold our shares, we control the business. And so someone can't just suddenly buy up all the shares and take over the business. So we feel in control. And, you know, that's not linked to a, um, someone's fund um, age or, you know, cycle. So I have one final question on funding, because it is, it, it is the most important element, well, actually one of the big three themes of growing businesses, right, funding. And normally people go to equity because it gives them access to scale, it gives them speed, and it gives them markets, right? So do you feel that you compromised on anything by not going to the equity markets earlier, whether it's in public or private equity? No. I, I mean, I, I think the... I suppose if the question was about how do I feel about being um, a listed company, the it's actually not been bad at all you know i think when we went on the original um tour of the prospective investors it was a pretty grueling um, period of weeks when we were literally doing the same um presentation to rooms from two people to 40 people you know eight or ten times a day till 10 o'clock at night for week after week it seemed like an eternity in edinburgh and you know london etc but what it did tell you is that people often said it's, um, it's very unusual for a business to come to market that's been grown from nothing, that's still run by the owner, founders of the business, and that's got you know, an amazing brand. And so we sort of knew we'd got something quite good. I mean, we, we, I suppose we knew that before we went to market, but um, it just sort of suggested that, that it just told us there was so much of a future, in other words, to grow the business internationally and well nationally and internationally and so it sort of gave us a lot of confidence so and having said that as long as you um over um deliver and under promise it's you know life's not too bad i think obviously if you start over hyping it and and fall short then obviously it gets yeah. life gets a bit tougher so you talked about international. So again, another, another theme is access to markets, whether it's domestic or international. And you clearly chose Denmark, um, Hong Kong, U, uh, US and Japan. Um, ha so how have you navigated the economic, the political? I mean, you talked about legal systems and language for the cocoa plantation. But as you look to grow internationally, what are you trying and um, how do you identify where you're going and how you're going to? I think the, the biggest uh, the biggest thing is um, is uh, suitability and scale of market. And now you might say, well, why the hell did we start in Denmark? And the answer was because we were small with limited resources and limited... Um, we, we were sort of using it as a training ground. In other words, if we can understand how we can get into a European Union country, which supposedly is very easy, um, then that would give us confidence to explore other markets. The interesting thing about Denmark was... The, everything was different. The language was different, the currency was different, the um, employment laws were different, they had something called a fat tax. I mean, so literally everything, the culture was different. So, you know, to suggest that being in the European Union was, um, this isn't a political statement, this is a factual commercial one, um, being there was a, a doddle. It's, the answer is it wasn't. And so, although we, it did teach us about lots of things, including, you know, ingredients law you know and labeling etc um, 
But then as we've grown more confident, the markets, the Japanese market, uh, the reason that we're interested in that is that if you look at, as some of you may know another retail, UK retailer called Lush, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, our our um, chairman is the ex-chief exec of Lush and he uh, was there for 20 years and he um, opened the Japanese market and Lush, an English company, have got more shops in Japan than they've got in the UK. And so there's a lot of knowledge that it's a very organised market. Um, it's a market that likes, um, likes good things, good quality uh, things, likes, likes British things. And um, that gave us the confidence to say, well, that's a really interesting market. And, you know, to say, OK, let's go to, uh, you know, I don't know, Germany. Um, it's, you know, it wasn't as strong as saying, you know, Lush hasn't got 100 shops in Germany, you know, but it has got them there. In, in Japan. And the other thing is we saw that Godiva, another chocolate business, um, has um, over 100 shops there as well. And we just thought that this is, you know, a market that we could see if we can break into it, we, we, we would then have a sort of a potential to grow it quite significantly. Um, you talked about your chairman. Actually, I was going to ask you this question. So um, since you've been on AIM, you have your own governance because it's dictated by the, the rules. But before coming on AIM, and with no external investors, how did you govern yourself as a business? Because this is something that I, I find a lot of fast growth scale-ups um, having to sort of grapple with, the sort of CEO chairman hat versus, you know, the independent hat. How did you manage that? Um, I, I think it was in 2010, I would think. Um, it was, yeah, I think it was about 2010, we took on a non-exec director who was actually a, a partner in a well-known accounting, London accounting firm. And uh, he was very helpful because he, um, I, I don't know, for, formalised a little bit more about the way we operated in our board meetings and uh, that was very good. So we were sort of preparing ourselves that at some point we were going to want to um, have an investment in the business and have outside people. I mean, you know, the, the quite one of the other reasons that we wanted to um, float the business apart from wanting to grow it um, into a much bigger is we wanted to have some money ourselves as well. And, you know, when you've got a business that where you own all the shares and it's a limited company and you look at a payroll every month of whatever it was at the time, 1,500 people, it's quite daunting. And I must admit, you know, I've seen businesses before that have got, had a problem for a period of time and the people who set that business up lose control and then the business recovers and then other people benefit from that. And I think I would have been mortified if having built up our baby, Hotel Chocolat, for whatever it is, 25 years, to sort of lose it because we were a bit casual and would have been mortifying. So I can honestly say, you know, it, Hotel Chocolat has been good for us and we've now on to the next stage. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have to sort of suffer that nightmare. <laughs> so talking about the next stage then, um, so what is the next big challenge or pivot for the business? Because you've grown and you've expanded and you've got, re you know, relate related uh, interests. What's the next big pivot for you? I think it's to actually develop those international markets successfully because we're literally, you know, just at the nascent stage there and it's never easy. And, you know, w when you look at the backdrop in the, um, the UK with Brexit and, you know, sort of general malaise, it's sort of completely coincidental we've chosen two countries that are outside the European Union. 
So we're not sort of um, focused on, on that side of things. So we just want to be successful in uh, the big, the main markets, and obviously the US and um, Japan are those at the, uh, at the yeah, moment. The US is a very key market for a lot of people. So as you look into those markets, are you drawing support from outside? I mean, I don't know if there are many businesses here that are looking to grow and grow internationally. What support networks or what ecosystems have you tapped in to support you? Um, it's a good it's a good question i mean i think a lot of the um way we work is um with people on the ground in those on the, on the ground in those countries so in the in the case of japan um the guy who's our chief exec out there of the joint venture um he um is an english guy married to a japanese wife and he used to be the chief exec of uh, qvc in japan and so he's already set up a very successful business there. And he used to take Hotel Chocolat chocolates to his in-laws. And his in-laws were forever saying, they are the most fantastic chocolates we have ever tasted. And when he took them, it wasn't just about them trying to ingratiate with, them, with, with him. It was actually because they really liked them. And so this sort of made him approach us. And we talked about it. And we were already looking at that as a market because of our connection with our chairman. And, you know, that was a really good start. Great. Um, I'm conscious that I want to allow the audience to ask questions. Does anybody have a question out in the audience? We've got a roving mic somewhere as well. Yeah, we've got one here. Thank you, Peter. What a fantastic story. Um, one thing I have been thinking about is the logistical challenges. Uh, that's something you didn't really mention, and some odd things have flowed smoothly and decisions have been made. But I can't but think that throughout your expansion, <coughs> um, you know, what chocolates you get, when, how do you produce, what are those challenges involved and what has been the worst <coughs> in the, the, the and learning from it? Yeah, no, well, I mean, the good thing about a growing business is you start small and then you face the problem. So when we bought that first chocolate machine, we were able to make all of that of a certain type of chocolate. We then bought another two or three machines, two or three lines over a period of time. And what that did is it exposed the bottlenecks at different places. So, you know, it's fine if you're packing a chocolate off the end of a line that's then ready to be shipped to a customer. But if you look at a pack, a box of chocolates with, say, 15 different chocolates, you've got to have 15 runs of the machine. You've got to then somehow have all those chocolates held in a place to then have to then pack them. So that is a sort of nightmare. So you have to get good at your logistics. And then we've obviously got things like shelf lives. Um, to say it's not my bag is, is, is fair. And I said early on, it's great to have people in the business who are experienced in those sorts of things. So we've got a fantastic uh, COO who manages that whole area, but it's, um, it's grown over a period of time and we've got good, it's, it's about good people, good experienced people who understand those logistical things. It's about um, the systems that support that. Um, but we're quite, you know, we make 250 million individual chocolates a year and um, you have to sell all those chocolates to, to make the thing work. And, this, you know, with the shelf life, the shortest shelf life is probably six months. Um, you can't suddenly stock all the wrong things. So it, the answer is there's no simple way. 
but over a period of time we've built up and we, we use input from um, we've used from Cambridge University Institute for Manufacturing they've done projects with us um, we're working with Kaizen you know the, the Japanese system so um, you know they're different approaches so literally drawing on experience from individuals that work for us through to outside parties that can help us thank you Mike, we've got a few people up there. Thank you. <coughs> yeah, hi, um, Gustavo. Thank you for this presentation. I'll, I'll, I have a couple of questions just from the early stage. In the startup stage, you still went 16 years. I counted from 87 until you had a hotel chocolate. So you went from first having a mint marketing. Mint I marketing. didn't. I missed it a little bit. You moved from mint marketing to chocolate at some stage. But actually, that's not my main point. In 16 years, I presume it was quite up and down. And my, my main question is, did you uh, consider seriously to exit? And actually, I ask it on a personal level. How many times did your wife tell to stop <laughs> playing around and get a job? <laughs> well, I, I, t I talked about um, the importance of profitability. And I'm very proud to say that um, we've only made a loss in two years in our total 32 years. So I think that what that really tells you is we didn't spend more than we had apart from twice. And so after, in the, uh, in the very early years, <coughs> that money that we lent to the company, after a while to give ourselves dignity, we started paying it back to ourselves as if it was a salary. So we used to get whatever it was, 200 pounds a month. And it sort of felt like you were being paid and that gave the company a sort of breathing space before it then had to pay us a, not had to, but did pay us a salary. So I think after about, um, th in the third year, we started paying ourselves small, you know, modest salaries. And so, and we never stopped that. I mean, well, you know, that's not entirely true, but we normally never stopped that. And, I think the, you know, we had good years and not so good years. So, you know, the, the, I can't remember the exact curve, but it's probably sort of like that, you know, so we, we grew the business. But going into chocolates, which happened in about, um, I think, 1991 probably, or, or maybe 1990, I can remember the way that happened was people said to us about the mint marketing company, um, we love your mints, but what else do you do? And this was a question posed by one of the five-star hotels in Park Lane. <coughs> we said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, do you say do a little box of chocolates, we'd say four chocolates with our name on it? And we said, leave it with us. And we went away. And then a week later, we went back with a little mock-up of this box of chocolates with their name on it and said, is this the sort of thing you mean? And they said, that is exactly what we mean. We like to order 5,000. And we thought, oh my God, we're in the chocolate business. <laughs> and literally, that, is the, that was the sort of pivotal moment. And you know, I, I said to you earlier on about listening to customers. You know, we could have at that point just sort of said, no, we don't do chocolates and forget it. But we just thought, you know, our development cycle of a week, well, it, that was a week to get the mock up. It was considerably longer to work out how to make the boxes and get the chocolates and pack them and satisfy hygiene rules and labeling and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, that was the impetus. And there's nothing better than having a serious order to make you do all those things. Because, you know, once you deliver it, they'll pay you the money. And, 
you know, get, you know, you can pay pay yourselves out of the profits. So, so, but having said that, you did flag one thing there, which you suggested that maybe we could have sold the business sooner. Um, it, I think it was in 1994. Um, we used to, we originally started buying chocolates from Thornton's, and we were approached by Thornton's then in 94, and they said, uh, we'd like to buy your business um, for £5 million, and um, by the way, if you don't sell it to us, um, we, uh, we'll um, stop supplying you with chocolates in, within six months. And we thought, what a disgusting way to deal with, you know, with us, our little fledgling business. So we were absolutely incensed, so we never bought another chocolate off Thornton's at that point. But we turned them down, of course. Does that, does that answer your question? Uh, my, uh, <laughs> well, no, actually, my, my, you see, I, I, I only went without pay for probably three years. And in that time... <laughs> well, what's funny? <laughs> my son was starving, so... <laughs> no, but the... No, but it, it, it's out... I mean, you might think I'm trivialising it, but, you know, we were paying ourselves the, two, the £200 a month back. Um, we had a small amount of savings. Um, and, you know, we didn't go on holidays in that period. We didn't buy new cars. You know, we shared a car. But none of these things were particularly, you know, felt terrible in any way at all. In fact, you know, I was quite, you know, I was so motivated, it didn't matter. And, you know, I think if you ask my wife, I think she'd just say, well, it was, you know, it was, it was an interesting period. But we were never sort of um, having creditors, you know, knock on our door or anything like that. We were, we were sort of more cautious than that. Thank you, Peter. Questions at the back. Hi, thank you for a very interesting talk. Uh, so I've tried a lot of different flavors of your chocolate on revision breaks. Um, and <laughs> I always, chocolates? Yeah, Hotel okay. Chocolat, the one in Cambridge. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I always can tell that it's your chocolate. It all kind of, it's different, but it kind of tastes the same. So in your previous business model, when you had a lot of different suppliers, how did you ensure the consistency of your product and your brand in a way? Well, the answer is we didn't. It wasn't, you know, the, you, know you might have one milk chocolate with, say, <coughs> 30, uh, 30 or 40% cocoa solids and another one that may have had 50%. So when people tasted the boxes, they actually really liked them because there was a sort of quite a big variety. Um, but having said that, it wasn't sustainable because of the growth thing, but also... Um, the logistics thing, because if one company let you down and you've made, made a place in the tray for that chocolate and it suddenly didn't arrive or they made a mistake in the last minute, you were in real trouble and you then had to think on your feet and find another solution. So it was, it was good, but you know, having said that, we do, in, our, um, in Hotel Chocolat, we do have um, chocolate couverture from many different places, so from... Vietnam, from Madagascar, from Colombia, from Ecuador. Um, so you can actually get those different flavours if you, if you choose. Um, but, um, you know, but having said that, you have to focus to some extent for the reasons of scale on your house chocolate because, you know, when we're running our machines, um, you know, make, they, they have to make chocolate that's sort of, you know, pumped into um, the depositing lines. Um, so you can't sort of chop and change that very, very easily. Thank 
Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you for sharing your story, very inspirational. And I would like to know, uh, once you decided to make your own chocolate and build your brand, uh, how, do you, how did you decide on your business model based on shops rather than going wholesale and uh, sell through retails? So it's a very good question. I, and I, I, I didn't gloss over it, I just didn't include it. But in a period in 1995, um, before, this is while we had the delivered chocolate gift business, we also started working with um, some of the supermarkets. So we worked with Sainsbury's for a year and we um, um, did a million pounds worth of business with them. And that was partly our own brand, a, a brand we made up, a name we made up, and another part with Sainsbury's own brand. Um, it was an absolute nightmare dealing with them. They never wrote us a purchase order. Anything that went wrong was our fault. They didn't pay us. I mean, the, fi my, the final straw was, I think I had, a 90 th and I had an 80,000 um, pound VAT bill and they owed us 90,000 pounds. And I went, and it was six months overdue and Sainsbury's had a bank. So I just thought this whole thing is an absolute nightmare. So I told the buyers buyer his fortune and um, effectively then stopped doing business business with them but it was a fantastic um, experience to stop us dealing with the um, with the you know the multi uh, with the, the the grocer the main grocers but also the other thing about that is and, the, and you realize this when you deal with these people is we had some fantastic chocolates in the in Sainsbury's and they sold really well for about two years and then they could see them selling well so they then invented another, got a competitor to make something that looked like ours in the same colour packaging. Um, and then they put theirs in the, in the eye line and ours were down at the bottom, more expensive. And so it's sort of, you know, you could see their tactics and you just thought, this is not what I want. And so when I said earlier on that I absolutely love our relationship with our customers. So all our online customers, we've got their email addresses. You know, we've, we've got their addresses, you know, we've got their phone numbers in many cases. We can communicate with them very easily. And in our shops, no one can take our chocolates off our shelves. So when people come in our shops, they see our chocolates. If we say we want Easter eggs there in the prime place, they're there. If we want Valentine's Day, they're there. And if you're in a supermarket, you know, at a drop of a hat, they'll just change it. They'll say nappies make us more money, and they'll put nappies instead of chocolates. So it was a sort of brilliant, you know, so I, you know, I love, um, I love the fact that we're not dealing with those people. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I think there was a question up there. Thank you so much for that talk. It was um, fascinating. Um, it sounds like you've had consistent success, as you said, um, only making a loss in two years. Um, and I, it seems that you've done good business in terms of the financials and also the ethics, and you've been rewarded for it. I guess my question is, because you're a luxury brand, 
Um, you listen to your customers, very authentic um, credibility with the, your own plantation. Um, that has kind of given the scope for you to be rewarded for the the ethical focus you um, you built into the business model. And possibly if you were a mass market chocolate um, company or potentially just doing business in other sectors, you might not be re as rewarded for your ethics and principles as you have been. So my question is um, for um, business, for entrepreneurs in other spheres, how can one really put that principled focus approach into business and still keep the profit? I think the, it's, it's funny, with, with, with ethics, you know, we've only done a small amount. Although, you know, when I, when I say we've paid for the planting of a million trees on, and helped all these sustainable projects, I'm incredibly proud of it in one respect. But also, when you look at it in relation to, uh, you know, national and international problems, it's tiny, but, you know, it's, it's the best we can do. But we've got big ambitions to... Um, continue our ethical approach. So things like by the end of 2020, we want all our packaging to be recyclable, uh, um, biodegradable or reusable. And that's something that we've, we, 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 you know, we've made, made clear to our, our customers. And so I think, although you know, arguably it's more expensive because it's, an, it's at the sort of early part of people getting their act together on um, ethical packaging, we believe that if we can make savings in other areas to help us fund those initiatives, then it puts us in a much better position with um, our customers to keep their loyalty and their commitment to us. And it's funny because, you know, I've described earlier on about uh, having good ingredients. At the time where we made that um, commitment to ourselves that we only wanted good ingredients. Our competitors were pumping chocolates full of hydrogenated vegetable fat and about two or three years after that it actually got banned. And you know so this was this is nothing more than common sense. So you know I think yes we're in a, a we're in a slightly better position than the multinationals but you know they've got their own strengths and you know we've got our strengths. So you know, I think all you can do in your own businesses is to make sure you're aligned with um, um, your customers and the world around you. So you can't just say, I'm going to sell something for loads of money, um, ignoring the fact that, you know, uh, plastics are polluting the oceans. You know, you've got to take some level of responsibility and try and mitigate that in a sensible and um, professional way as you can. So, so, I mean, having said that, um, I don't think there's a, there's a simple answer. But, you know, if you're ethically sound and you like um, doing things for the right reason, that's the best place to start because often your, you know, your gut feel and your um, perception is probably as good as anyone else's. Thank you, Peter. Any questions from this side? How applicable, applicable are your, you made various decisions during the journey. So how applicable that would be if you were in some other business? Saying, would you do the same or uh, like, for example, resisting the temptation to take equity finance? Uh, uh, it's, it's, a fair, it's a very fair question. You know, it's, e it's easy for me to sit here and say, I did it this way. But uh, I fully accept that if you're in 
um, biotechnology where you've got a level of research. It costs money to do that research and develop a product. That, and to do that um, is very difficult. So there are obviously reasons why you need to get funding. But I don't think it actually takes away from that point I made earlier on because I've done a talk before to the Cambridge University Entrepreneurs. Is any of you involved in that? Q, yeah, okay. So when, when I've done that, I can remember sitting in front of a guy and uh, he just literally said to me, I'm developing this thing, I'm keeping it very close to my chest, it's to be sold to pharmaceutical businesses. But he'd never spoken to those people. And, you know, so I think if you speak to those, your potential customers, I think it will give you a little bit of a guide as to whether there's a market and then when you work out whether there is a market, then what route you have to take to be able to fund that, which could be, you know, um, could be borrow money from the bank to get to first stage and then they'll give you an order. You know, I can remember when I was in the computer business, um, we would get pilot orders which would fund the next bit of development cycle. So we did a pilot aptitude testing system for the RAF and we sold them one system, and that then led on to us selling them 25 systems. So there's sort of different ways, but I accept that. And what's the other thing is on, on software, obviously with software, um, depending on the um, complexity of it, but you can do sort of pre-sales of version one and then, you know, get onto version two and make people pay. And so there's different models, really. I don't think one should be close to the idea that it's impossible to keep hold of your equity. I agree. So I'd just like to add, I think with the emergence of alternative funding sources, with crowdfunding, peer-to-peer, -peer, the banks are much more focused on growth lending. And even IP lending, banks are now looking at how do you lend on IP, potential value of IP, potential uh, revenue cash stream. So I don't distract, no, but there are, so many, there are so many new products coming out on the market that the, um, the opportunities that are outside equity are there, but equally equity brings something, like it brought you something from an aim point of view. So there are lots of things to explore. Sorry, any questions up here? Hi, <laughs> thank you for a very good talk. Two, two small questions. First one is, um, so you mentioned the value of having very good people in your company. Did you put in place any uh, incentive programs such as, um, you know, share options or um, EMI schemes? First question. And second uh, question, you probably can tell from where I'm coming from with my accent. So why, why you didn't choose to open a, a shop in Paris in, in France? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll answer the, the first one's easier than the second. Um, we, we do, we have... Um, a long-term uh, um, long in incentive program, so people have been allocated, key people in the business have got shares, or share options, I should say, um, so they can benefit as the company develops. And that's something that we know is very important to keep the good people in Hotel Chocolat. But it's one of the methods of um, um, keeping them motivated, you know, I think, treating them well and funny enough we're going through a process of trying to be on the be best companies to work for list and so we've just recently done a survey of across our 2,000 uh, employees and something like 78% of the people have actually completed the survey which sort of shocked the people who are all, you know external people who are doing that work for us who said normally the most you get is about 67% 
So I think, you know, if you make the place a good place to work, then that creates a, an element of loyalty because it's your vocation and your, your, your job, but you still have to reward people with bonuses and incentive programs. We also have a um, share-save system uh, scheme as well, so any employees can buy up to a certain amount of shares or commit to buy, no, they buy, they put the money in, but they don't lose the money because they only have to um, 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 cash it in if the shares are above the price that they were allocated the shares in the first, or, or potentially allocated the shares in the first place. So we have those. To your second question, and why we haven't opened in Paris, um, I suppose it's really to do with the way that um, France sells its chocolates. A lot of chocolates in uh, France are sold through patisserie, patisseries, and um, it's a quite an ingrained method. So um, we just thought that it wouldn't necessarily, you know, our approach may not necessarily be brilliant for France or Paris. So it's not not that we're afraid of the French, <laughs> but it's just uh, you know we wanted to be in markets that we believed were potentially going to, to you know, be successful for us. So we might be, we might come there, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just conscious of time. I've got time for one more question. Gentleman here, please. But you have time with Peter outside afterwards. Hi, thank you very much for that. Um, very interesting talk. So, could you talk a little bit more about the very, very early stages? So how did you meet your co-founder? Um, what made you decide to go into business together? Um, was he part of the computer business? Did the computer business fail? How did that sort of impact your next business, the Mints? Yeah, that's so no, good. good. Very good question. Uh, the answer is, when I was at Torch Computers, I was the only director that lasted from 1981 to 1987, when the business was actually sold to um, one of our customers. But it was, the, it was a, a funny time in um, private equity. I, I didn't make any money. My 40% of the shares from day one were worth the value of a bus ticket at the end. But a year before the end, I, in 1986, I recruited Angus, my current business partner, and he and I worked together on the um, international sales and marketing of the business. And so we went to various... Um, countries selling computers so we went to Sweden and Germany etc and we really enjoyed working together and we had sort of complementary skills so it was actually a bit like a business honeymoon so in other words it was sort of uh, you know a trial if you like and then uh, at the end of that when the business was being sold both of us wanted to go into business and do set up a business another business the only thing we didn't know was what it was going to be and so we were hunting around for ideas and um, the idea we came up, came up with was packets of peppermints. I mean, we thought of all sorts of things like um, shellfish by post, you know, but we just thought if it gets, if it gets a bit delayed or overheated, <laughs> you know, the results won't be ideal. So we had all sorts of harebrained ideas, but um, the mince one was the one that stuck and then we, we both left the company when it was sold, I mean, they wanted to keep keep us, but we just thought to ourselves, we ha we're not in the game there. We didn't have any equity of any value, and we just felt it was the right time to work together. But people often ask the question, how come you're still talking to each other 
30 odd years on and it, the answer is because we had that period of a year and the thing about that was it set up the terms of reference in a business sense rather than a personal sense so in other words we were business colleagues first rather than friends whereas a lot of people set up businesses um, they're friends and dare I say it the friendship sort of you know it's tested and often fails thank you Peter um, I just want to sort of try and sum up all that rich information that we've heard over the last couple of hours. We've talked about access to finance, talent, markets, governance, um, people. Um, so I take away five things from your talk, Peter. One about limiting your funding to debt and equity is expensive. But the one thing that struck me was that you wanted to retain control and the freedom to make decisions. So that's the one thing. The second thing I took away was the creativity of around ma managing cash. So the strategy around store openings may not be relevant for a lot of you, but actually the, the, the thinking about how, how you can manage cash flow, because you've got to turn revenue to profit and you'll only survive if you've got cash, right? So profits are great, but cash is actually ultimately what will help you survive and fund. So the creativity of that, and you talked about orders first and you talked about um, um, making money rather than spending, which is actually quite interesting because there was a study done around businesses that raise lots of money and end up spending it rather than focusing on the core aim of what they're trying to achieve in the short term. The third thing I took away was quality in, in, in its broadest sense, whether it be the product ingredients and managing supply chain. And there was a very good question around quality and how you maintain, manage that because ultimately it's about you know your customers. And you also talked about great people and the importance of people, which I think often gets lost in the, in the messaging. The fourth thing I took away was um, actually rather than chasing value, you looked at creating value through your loyalty, through your customer base. So the fact that you have a database you can go to and you still have it, assuming you yeah, are compliant. Yeah, um, absolutely. The fact that you're you know, talking about the tasting club. You know, there's lots of things that you've talked about today which really brings the essence of how do you create value in your essence is your customer experience. There was a question earlier about you know, what is it that would make your business and you've got to find that essence. So there was something around the essence. Um, and the last thing, I guess, was really around focus. You talked about courage and application and confidence very early on. You talked about the governance and the importance of that governance structure around you. So it feels like even though you've done lots of things, there's been a really clear focus. So those are the five things I've taken away. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you My have. Pleasure. So please.